Welcome to the sermon podcast of Southside Baptist Church, a body of Christ located in beautiful Norman Park, Georgia. We are so glad you chose to listen in today. It's our prayer you would find the message of Jesus Christ compelling and uplifting, and that your life would be changing continually from hearing the Word of God. If you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. And now for today's message. Back, if you would, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. As we walk through the book of Acts. Part three of Peter's sermon there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, uh, we'll finish, we'll, well, we won't finish up, but we'll move on. We'll begin in uh, verse 37 there, uh, Peter's final portion of the, the, the sermon there at Pentecost. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 37, we'll read through verse uh, 41. We begin with a series. The title of the series is The Birth and Expansion of the Early Church. And oh, by the way, uh, the outline, if you want an outline, they're up front here uh, for the message. So I hope everybody will, that wanted one picked up one. If, if you didn't, you can come up and get one uh, if, you, if you would like an outline. We weren't able to get those in the bulletin uh, this week. So uh, they're there if you would like one. There's some in the back as well. Uh, So if you want one, they're back there as well. So the birth and expansion of the early church. So again, the title this morning is this, Peter Preaches at Pentecost. This is part three of this three-part sermon, if you will, of Peter on the day at Pentecost. And, And honestly, this may be the most important part of Peter's sermon. I've titled this one, A Call to Repent. Peter calls the people there. He's talked about Jesus being the Messiah. He's talked to the, he's, he's called them and told them that they were the ones who crucified Christ. And at a certain, a certain point, church, we've got to understand that there needs to be a call to repentance. We have to call people to repentance. In fact, when we share the good news of the gospel, that is a responsibility of us. We have to get to a point where we ask people, listen, do you want to be saved? I mean, we, we have to ask that question. Uh, and so we're kind of going to see that uh, this morning. So again, if you found that passage there in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word? Be reading again down through verse 41. The Bible says this in verse 37. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and the rest of the, of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them this, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your, your children and for all who are far off, everyone, Whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 
souls. Father God, we come to you, Lord. We praise you on this glorious day. God, we're going to call folks to repentance this morning. We're going to see repentance, and we're going to see as Peter preaches this final portion of his sermon there at Pentecost. God, there's a call to repent. There's a call to return, return from our sins and turn to God. And so we're going to see that call this morning as we walk through your word. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity of repentance. Because penance, repentance and faith lead to salvation. And so we're thankful for that. And God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. In 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he went to decide where the platform should be located. In order to test the acoustics of the building, Spurgeon cried in a loud voice. He said this, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In one of the galleries, a workman, who knew nothing of what was being done, heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin. Put down his tools. He went home and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. It was on his deathbed that this man told the story of his conversion. The result of God speaking to him through a single verse of Scripture uttered by Spurgeon. When Spurgeon preached in that building a day or two later, it was to a crowd of 23,654 people. But such is the power of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, not only of the world and not only of the potential 23,654 people that were there listening to Spurgeon that day, but of the one lone man working in a building when a preacher came to test the acoustics. This man will forever be grateful that when Spurgeon stood in front to do his sound check, he did not simply count to ten. He spoke the Word of God. He spoke the Word of God. And I want to assure you this morning, the power of the gospel could not be denied that day in 1857. But I'll assure you of this, church, nor can the power of the gospel be denied this Sunday, November the 22nd, 2027, 2022, at Southside Baptist Church. The power of the gospel in 1857 is just as powerful today. This man was convicted by the power of the gospel. He was convicted by those words, not by the words that Charles Spurgeon spoke, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter concludes his main body of his sermon by charging those within earshot with rejecting and executing their Messiah, the very one whom God had made both Lord and Christ. We've already walked through all of that. This, of course, would have been a devastating revelation. Think about this. These individuals that heard Peter preach the beginning of his message, they heard Peter say, listen, this was the promised Messiah, the Messiah that you Longed for, and yet you executed. So that naturally, they would have wanted to know what was what could they, what could be done, man. What is there anything that could be done? Can we correct this problem? They questioned how they could be saved, and Peter gives the correct answer to this question. So our point this morning is this: 
Peter called those at Pentecost to repent and be saved. And so this morning, through the Word of God, I want to call you as pastor of Southside Baptist Church to repent and be saved. Repent and be saved. So let's consider uh, Peter's call of repentance this morning. And that call is going to include three very distinct and essential aspects for salvation. Number one is this, a conviction of the heart. There must be a conviction of the heart. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, that's those who were listening to Peter, they were cut to the heart, the Bible says, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Is there anything we can do? We've done murdered our Messiah. We've done uh, sent him to the cross and, and all those other things. Peter, is there anything that we can do? So like that man there that was smitten by conviction by the words of Charles Spurgeon, these men of Israel, they were convicted. Their hearts were convicted. Their hearts were broken. They'd come to grips with Peter's message that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was in fact the Son of God. And they had been complicit in His crucifixion. The very Messiah, church, that they had longed for for all those years was Jesus Himself. And they had sent Him to the cross. And basically murdered Him. The Bible tells us that these men were cut to the heart. That means they were pierced thoroughly. They were deeply wounded in the inner recesses of the individual. You remember what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says about the Word of God? It says, for the Word of God is what? Living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. These men were cut to the heart by knowing that they had crucified the Messiah, that the, the, what, the words that Peter had preached to them on that day. This is the first step of salvation. When God draws, the Spirit begins to convict the soul of man and, and woman and, and boy and girl. This is the beginning of salvation, for without conviction, there is no salvation. Without conviction, there's not going to be salvation. And conviction begins, church, when we realize we're sinners. We realize that there's nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves. Nothing. We're going to see in a moment, you can't work your way to heaven. But it begins with conviction. That's conviction of our sin. So true and genuine salvation, it begins when one finally comes to the point they tried it their way. They'd done their thing. They'd walked in their own path. You know, the Spirit may have been convicting their hearts before this. Who knows? But what we do know that up until this point, these men were not cut to the heart. Now they were cut to the heart. Listen, all of us, all of us who are ch children of God have been cut to the heart. We've had that realization of that moment that, that we realize, listen, this is the Holy Spirit that is convicting me. God is drawing me to Himself and our hearts have been convicted. And most of us, many of us probably have responded to that conviction. But I wonder, 
I wonder if there's not somebody here this morning or maybe somebody even listening on Facebook that has not made the decision. They feel the conviction. Listen, I've told you before, church, you're not here by accident. The very fact that you're here is probably because that your heart is being convicted in one way or another. I don't know what that is. That's between you and the Lord. But let me give you some of the things about conviction. Conviction is not, it's not a guilty conscience. It's not shame over our sin experience. This is experienced by everyone. Listen, we're, we're, we have a guilty conscience. When we do something wrong, it's a guilty conscience. We're all feel guilty about the things that we do wrong. But conviction, true uh, conviction is not just guilt or just shame over our sin. True conviction is not a sense or a feeling of fear or foreboding about divine judgment. We, we can feel guilty about our sin. We can have shame over our sin. We know in our minds that, listen, I'm going to be judged for that. So it's not just that sense of or a feeling of, of fear or foreboding about divine judgment. It's not simply a recognition of right or wrong. I mean, you and I can read the Bible. We can read Romans 3.23. We can read Romans 6.23. We can read passages that speak of immoral and impure lives. We can read about that. But it doesn't necessarily lead to conviction. It's not true conviction. We feel guilty about those things. We feel shameful about those things. We understand when we read... uh, uh, Romans 3.23, that we've all sinned. We understand that we, when we read 6.23, that the wages of sin is what? Death. We understand all those things. But that's not necessarily true conviction. One commentator says this, The truth is, if we experience nothing more than a pang of conscience, anxiety at the height of a judgment, or an academic awareness of hell, then we have never truly known conviction of sin. Conviction then is this. To convict means to convince someone of the truth. It means to reprove. It means to accuse. It means to refute or cross-examine a witness. So true conviction is when we are convinced of the truth. Well, then you may ask yourself, well, how do I get convinced of the truth? Well, you get convinced of the truth by the conviction that's brought about by what? The Holy Spirit. When you read Scripture, you're convicted by the truths of Scripture. And then what does that conviction do? It, not, it doesn't lead you to guilt. It doesn't lead you to shame. It leads you to a response. And that response is, we'll see in a moment, repentance. Repentance. So conviction is to convince someone of the truth. And so the Holy Spirit acts as that prosecuting attorney. Man, that's a scary thought, isn't it? The Holy Spirit being the prosecuting attorney. I don't think there's anything we could do to get off there, huh? He exposes evil. He reproves evildoers. And he convinces people that they need a Savior. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart that you need a Savior. But I don't want those of us who are sitting here and are children of God to, to, to think that we can skate by here. Because when the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us necessarily that we need a Savior, that's already taken place. 
But what the Holy Spirit does convict the child of God of is that we have sins in our lives that we need to repent of. And we need to get back right with God. And so that conviction goes both ways. That conviction is the beginning step of salvation for those who have never accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. But for those who have, that conviction is also to convict us of our sinful race, to convict us of, of the, the way we're, we're treating God and, and, and our relationship it needs to be restored. So we praise the Lord for conviction of sin. For without it, there is no salvation. No one is saved apart from the Spirit's convicting and regenerating works in our heart. And I want you to understand something. The same Spirit that was convicting those men there at Pentecost that day is the same Spirit that convicts men and women and boys and girls today. It's no different. It's the same Spirit. And so we need to understand that. But notice what these individuals say. So they ask a very direct question. They're being convicted. They understand what's going on. And they want to know, is there anything we can do? Brothers, what shall we do? It's as if these men are asking Peter, is there any hope? Peter, is there any hope for us? I mean, we, we now recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. We now recognize that we had a part in the crucifixion of the Messiah, the, the long-awaited Messiah. Is there any hope for us, Peter? Can we be forgiven? We there speaks of the nation of Israel, but the reality of it is it's the same for the individual as well. We have to come to a point in our lives when we say, when we know we're being convicted by the Spirit, is there any hope? Is there any hope? A well-known professional golfer was playing in a tournament with President Gerald Ford, fellow pro golfer Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham. After the round was over, one of the other pros on the tour asked, Hey, man. What was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? The pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he headed for the practice tee. His friend followed, and after the golfer had pounded out his fury on the bucket of golf balls, he asked, Was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro sighed and said with embarrassment, No. Billy didn't even mention religion. Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God. He'd said nothing about Jesus or nothing about religion. Yet the pro golfer stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. It wasn't Billy Graham. It was the conviction of the Spirit of God that was convicting this man. It wasn't Billy Graham. Billy Graham had nothing to do with it. He was just there to play golf. That's the power of conviction, church. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regard or without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. So conviction is the first step in coming to faith in Christ. We're convicted of the reality that we are indeed sinners and there's nothing that you and I can do about it apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We violate a holy and a righteous God. The question is, how will you and I respond to conviction? How will you respond? So conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the second essential aspect in this call uh, is a responsibility of those who are being convicted. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. The second thing we need to notice, the second essential uh, aspect of this call to repent is this, is a command to repent. There's a command to repent. Verse 38 and 39. Look at verse 38 first. After they asked the question, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them this, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter answers their question. Brothers, what shall we do? He says, listen, man, you need to repent. You need to repent. There's three components of this verse I want us to kind of highlight as we move forward. First of all, that word repent. That word repent, it means to change one's mind. To change one one's mind. In fact, re- repentance is 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 the, the, the compound of two different words. One means to change, and the other means to, uh, mind. It means to change one's mind. It's the initial uh, re- repentance of the sinner into salvation. So this is our role. This is our responsibility. The Spirit convicts, but it's our responsibility to say yes to the Spirit's conviction. Repentance. It's more than a feeling sorrowful for our sin. It's more than that little boy going into the the cookie jar and sticking his hand down into the cookie jar and pulls out that cookie. And as soon as he does, his mom's standing there with, with her arms crossed. That boy feels guilty. But I guarantee this, the next time mom's not around, you know what he's going to do? Go get another cookie. That's not what true repentance is. That's just feeling guilty about being caught. That's what that is. It's more than that. It's more than feeling sorrowful. It's that feeling of sorrow and then acting upon that dreadful sorrow. It's that feeling of of knowing that we have disappointed God. It's that feeling of knowing that we are separated from God because of our sin and not just knowing it and not just wallowing in that, but knowing it and then doing something about it. That's called repentance. Peter's telling him, listen, you need to do something about this. You need to do something about what you've done. You need to do something about what, why you're, the conviction that you're facing. Think of it this way. It's an abrupt change in one's mind, a complete change of viewpoint or worldview. In other words, we cha- the change of mind leads to a change of direction. True repentance, saving repentance, repentance and faith are, are the, 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 the same side of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. Because without repentance, you have no faith. Without faith, you have no repentance. So it's the same side, uh, two sides of the same coin. But it means that we change our mind. In other words, I'm going towards my sinful ways. I'm walking down this aisle to go out the door towards my sin. And then I change my mind. I repent and I turn from going outside and turning back to the front of the church or the back of the church, whatever you think. It's the thinking turning from sin and turning to God. It's the essential first step. First Thessalonians one nine, Paul 
gives a picture of it this way. He says this, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. And here it is. How you turned what? To God from idols. They turned from idol worship and turned to God. They repented of their idol worship and returned back to God. To serve the living and true God. First Peter chapter 2.25. Peter does a, similarly speaks of repentance this way. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now turned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. They had repented. They had gone astray like sheep going astray. They had gone towards their sin and they turned from that. They repented of that. Listen, church, we can't have true repentance True repentance doesn't come in the life of the individual that says yes to Jesus and yes to the world. It does not work that way. True repentance comes when an individual says yes to Jesus and no to the world. With a follower of Christ, same holds true. You and I as followers of Christ, if we've truly repented of our sins... We can't say yes to Jesus and then say yes to the world. It does not work that way. Our repentance is, 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 is repenting from the things of the world and turning back to the things of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. Until about four or five months ago, I really never paid attention to what that really meant. But now I know. I can't have my cake and I can't eat it too. I gotta have one or the other. We can't have the world and can't have God, y'all. We 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 can't. We we are a, a part of this world. We're but we're not. We're we don't. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. Notice what Peter says here. Now this is this verse thirty eight is probably the most debated verse in Scripture when it comes to those who claim that what Peter is suggesting here. That salvation comes through repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. So some suggest that what Peter is suggesting here, that in order for you to be saved, you have to, one, repent and be baptized. That's not what Peter's suggesting. That's not what Peter is suggesting. That repentance, repentance is for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. Well, how do you know, preacher? Because the Bible tells me that. Scripture is clear on that. In fact, that word for there used uh, in in Scripture, actually for is, is the... Is the word that 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 kind of there's three meanings for that word for in the Greek. One possible meaning in order to be, in other words, to become. In other words, what 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 they claim, the others claim, is that repentance and baptism are a part of, or in order to be forgiven of our sins, you have to repent and you have to be baptized. That's what that would claim. Others, there are because of or as a result of or with regard to. The context of this passage is that. Peter is suggesting that or saying that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Repentance as a result of the forgiveness of sin or forgiveness of sin as a result of repentance. Peter is not suggesting that you have to be baptized. He's not suggesting that baptism plays a role in one's salvation. Baptism comes after salvation. If it didn't, then verses like Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 would be useless. And we know that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is what? Not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of what? Works. Baptism is a works. So if we suggest that Peter is saying, listen, you have to repent and be baptized, then part of our salvation would be works-based salvation. What about the thief on the cross? Was he not saved? He didn't get baptized. Acts chapter 10. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter tells Cornelius, he says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on him who heard the word. What does Peter not mention in that verse? Baptism. Cornelius wasn't baptized until after he had repented and after he had received faith through the and the forgiveness of his sins through believing in Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12 But all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. It does not say that but all who did receive him and believed in his name and was baptized he gave the right to become children of God. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 and to the one who does not uh, does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Right? Note what, he, what Paul says at the beginning of that verse. And to the one who does not work. It's not about our works. It's about our faith. It's about our belief. It's about believing in Jesus. Believing in what Jesus did on the cross. It's about believing in Jesus' work. His finished work on the cross, not our works. There's nothing you and I can do to work our way to heaven. Paul himself, Paul himself, in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the Philippian jailer asked a very similar question. He says this, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What's not mentioned in that passage? Paul didn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized and you will be saved. So listen, church, if the Apostle Paul, if the Apostle Paul doesn't suggest that baptism is a part of our salvation, then I'm not going to suggest it either. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. So Peter is not suggesting that we need to, these individuals must repent and be baptized before they're saved. They repent for the forgiveness of their sins and then they follow in believers' baptism. He makes that clear in verse, uh, the rest of, of, of that passage, which is another one of those things. So, so they repented. They repented for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to repent. And then they were baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So they were baptized in the name of Christ. That baptism was a God-ordained method. It was water immersion of making, making a public profession of our repentance and faith. So they, they received Christ by faith. They received Christ by repentance. The Bible says, and, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit only comes when an individual truly repents of their sin and believes and has faith in Christ. Then they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the promise that has been talked about in, in the book of Acts. And then they follow in believers' baptism. That believer's baptism, it's an outward sign of that inward change that has occurred in the life of the believer. Listen, I believe it's, I believe that it's, it's a God-ordained uh, thing. I believe that if you are a child of God, you need to follow in believer's baptism. If you are physically able to do it. I believe that you're being disobedient to the Lord if you do not follow in believer's baptism, if you have made a profession of faith, if you have repented of your sins, if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and all those other things, through faith and repentance, you need to follow Him in believer's baptism. And if you don't, I believe you're being disobedient. If you have the opportunity to do that. I'm pretty sure, and I, I, just a, just speculation on my part, but if the thief on the cross had been had the opportunity to be baptized, I'm sure he would have been baptized. But he didn't have that opportunity. This identifies identifies us as with with Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection it identifies ourselves as Christian. It's visible proof taking a stand for Christ in the world. And think about this now. Think about these first century believers. Think about this, the, the, the church, this initial church. This would have been a big deal. When they were baptized, people would have recognized, man, they are now Christians. They are now followers of this Messiah that has been crucified. And so the watching world would have seen this and this, this evidence of these individuals that had been saved and now they were going to be baptized as identification of them being a follower of Christ, that would not have been a good thing for them. And the reality of it is, is it's not as difficult for us, but it is still visible proof. When we put people in the baptismal pool and we uh, we baptize them, it's it's visible proof of that inward change. It's visible proof of their decision to follow Christ. Now we see that as a church, but the world should see that as a visible proof as well. By the way, we live our lives. If we put off repentance, 
another day. We have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Let me read that again. If you we put off repentance another day, if you put off repentance another day, you have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Jesus not say? Repent and be baptized. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is an essential first step in our response to the conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit. We repent when we turn from our sinful ways, turn from sin, and turn to God. The final thing this morning, the conviction of the Spirit was obvious. The command to repent was given. And God got involved and amazing things happened. The third thing I want us to notice, and in honor of of Thanksgiving, a cornucopia of results. A cornucopia of results. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Can I, can I say this this morning? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. <laughs> Save yourselves. Listen, church, when we go out and share the gospel, maybe that's what we ought to lead with. Listen, I want you to save yourself from this crooked generation. Well, how do I do that? Well, let me tell you how you do it. Must have been a, a, a whole a lot of time going on here. There must have been more words that were spoken here. That Luke just didn't write them down here. Because it says many more words were spoken. It must have been an extended conversation. But the point Peter wanted to make was, listen, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Crooked there means perverse. It means evil. It means unrighteous. And I want to assure you, it's going to get even more evil. It's going to get even more unrighteous as we move forward. We need to implore people to save yourself from this crooked generation. Save there means to repent and have faith in Christ. Verse 41. Notice what happens here. This is an amazing thing to me. In verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Notice there it says those who received his word. So that's those who put their faith in the word that Peter preached. Faith in the gospel. Faith in the Messiah. Then they were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. I imagine we can consider this the first megachurch. Three thousand souls. As I read this and as I was studying about this and thinking about this, I thought to myself, man, what an amazing thing. I wonder how many people they had out there baptizing three thousand people. Where were they at? Where were they doing it? Surely it wasn't in a baptismal pool. Can you imagine that? 3,000 souls, those people who had repented, those people who had felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they repented of their sins, were being baptized. They were being baptized. 3,000 souls. I can't even imagine that. I can't even picture that. 
Now, some have suggested maybe this wasn't a, a, a baptism by immersion, but that's hard for me to believe because I'm thinking that to be true to Scripture, baptism is by immersion. And so why would this be any different? But at that very moment, as these folks were being baptized, they were added to the early church. But more importantly, they were added to the kingdom of God. They were added to the kingdom of God. This is a smaller scale with church membership. You think about this. These folks, the Bible says, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? They were added to the church. In this case, they were added to the overall church because essentially the church really hadn't expanded yet. It hadn't gone to these different locations and individual churches had not sprung up and had not been started, had not been planted, if you will. But it's no different than the local church. It's no different than local. Maybe maybe we can consider this 3,000 members plus the 120. So 3,120 members of the church there at Pentecost. I don't know what we would call it, what we would name it. But it was 3,000 members of the local church. But I want you to understand something. This was all brought about by the work of God. The work of God. You know, we can open our doors and we can invite people to come to Southside Baptist Church. We can have them join Southside Baptist Church, but I can assure you if it's not the work of God, that it's not going to last. It's not going to last. This is all the work of God. 3,000 souls were added Why? Because they were convicted by the Word of God. They repented because of the Word of God, because of the conviction that they had felt. And then they were added to the membership there that day of that local body of believers. And just think about this. Think about the impact. First of all, think about the impact that those 12 disciples had. Think about the impact that the 70 had. Think about the impact that the 120 had. Think about the impact that the 3,120 had. Shall I go on? Yes, I shall. So now think about the impact of the millions of followers of Jesus Christ now. That should encourage us. But it should also challenge us. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. The second part of that verse. We see it again. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's all the work of God. And here's our application point, And I think we need to understand this. When we play our part we leave the results to who? God. God. Amazing and wonderful things can happen. So we're going to close. Again, maybe you're here this morning. 
And I want to tell you this. I want to save yourself from this crooked generation. Well, preacher, how do I do that? First of all, you need to repent. You need to repent. Maybe God is convicting your heart. Maybe you've never never made a profession of faith. Maybe you have made a profession of faith, but it wasn't a true profession of faith. Repent. What does that mean? That means you turn from your sin and you turn to God. That's what that means. You put your faith in God and not in yourself, not in the world. You repent. And you follow in believer's baptism after that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you've been baptized and all those other things, but maybe you're living a lie right now. Maybe there's sin in your life that's interfering with your relationship with the Lord. You know what you need to do? Repent. You need to repent. Turn from your sin and turn back to the Lord. Repentance, listen, church, we we need to live in a continual state of repentance. Repentance. You know, some people say, listen, I want to come and rededicate my life. You know, what you need to do is you need to repent of the life that you're living in now. Turn from the sin that you're living in. And turn back to God because I can assure you of this. You're not going to rededicate yourself to the Lord until you repent of the sin that you're living in. So let me encourage you to do that this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you've never been baptized. You've never followed in believer's baptism. Maybe that is you this morning. You know, we can take care of that. (laughs) We've done a lot of it. I'd be willing to do it again. I'd be willing to do it again. So maybe that's you this morning. We can correct that too. Maybe you're here this morning listening. You want to be a part of Southside Baptist Church. Maybe you want to move your membership here to Southside Baptist Church. Maybe you want to be a, you're already a part of that, that universal church. But there's also significance in being part of your local church because you're going to do your part in your local church and it's going to affect the universal church. But it starts with the local church. It starts here. At Southside Baptist Church. So I don't know what the decisions need to be made. But there are decisions here this morning that need to be made. You can make those decisions during the invitation. Or you can make those after service. You can make those sometime. But I want to encourage you. Do not walk out of this building. Or do not. Whatever you need to do. Don't talk to me or however it needs to work. But don't 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 wait. Don't wait. Make those decisions today. Make those decisions today. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening today. We hope the word preached today would be used by God mightily as you go about your week. Again, if you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. Have a blessed day and may God grant you grace this week to grow more into the likeness of Jesus.